Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. (laughs) Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. I'm Brian Fishman, Policy Director of Counterterrorism at Facebook, former Director of Research at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, and your moderator for the program tonight. It is now my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Brett McGurk, distinguished lecturer at the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, former special presidential envoy overseeing the campaign to defeat ISIS under Presidents Trump and Obama, and senior foreign affairs analyst for NBC News. Brett McGurk has just joined Stanford's Freeman Spoley Institute, He resigned from his special envoy post this past December when President Trump announced a withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. Mr. McGurk had served as President Trump's envoy to defeat ISIS for the past two years, helping to oversee a global campaign with a coalition of 75 countries and four international organizations. He was appointed to that post by President Barack Obama in 2015 and was retained in this role by the Trump administration. Mr. McGurk previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iraq and Iran under President George W. Bush and has had nearly two decades of diplomatic service, particularly in the Middle East, across Democratic and Republican administrations. He attained the rank of ambassador and was presented the Distinguished Honor Award by Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and the Distinguished Service Award by Secretary of State John Kerry for exceptional service overseas. From October 2014 to January 2016, Ambassador McGurk led 14 months of secret negotiations with Iran that led to a prisoner swap and the return home of six Americans, including journalist Jason Rezaian. Before joining the Bush administration's national security team, he served as a law clerk to Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist and was at the Supreme Court during the September 11, 2001 attacks, an experience that led to his practice of foreign affairs at the highest levels in Washington, D.C. and on the front lines. Today, we're going to have a conversation about war, diplomacy, and presidential decision-making over the past three administrations. We'll discuss discuss the direction of U.S. foreign policy and the intertwining of policy and politics. Please welcome Brett McGurk. So, so Brett, as I've told you, I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation today and, and, uh, and thankful for the opportunity to moderate. Um, I, I thought we could start by, by just laying out your experience a little bit, because you first got involved directly in, in the Middle East in, in 2004 under the Bush administration, and maybe you could explain that experience, what you were doing then, and, and how your career evolved through the last three administrations. Yeah, well, thanks, Brian. And first, let me just say how, uh, how grateful and honored I am to be here, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the invitation from George and uh, to be speaking here at the Commonwealth Club is just a, a truly a, a tremendous opportunity. I'm new to the area, uh, I'm new to Northern California, the Bay Area, and based at Stanford, and it's just terrific uh, to be out of Washington. Um, and my and my wife is here in the front row. We have a little daughter. Life here is uh, it's it's a great it's a great part of the country, and um, I'm encouraging more and more people to come out, particularly those still stuck in Washington. <laughs> um, so you mentioned first that generous introduction. Uh, that was quite something. But you, you hit on a couple points, which I can kind of key off of. Um, so I grew up in Connecticut, uh, went to public schools. I went to law school at Columbia University. And after that, I did some clerkships. And I, I first came to Washington in uh, the summer of 2001 uh, to clerk on the US Supreme Court. Um, time frame that was right after Bush v. Gore was decided, so that was kind of the issue in the country. The country felt very divided, very polarized. Uh, it seems kind of quaint these days. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 want, I was a lawyer by training. I really loved constitutional law, and um, the clerkship was an incredible experience. Um, but then I was there on the attacks of September 11th. I actually learned about those attacks from Chief Justice Rehnquist. Uh, the Supreme Court in those days, I think still, one reason you don't have leaks out of the Supreme Court is there's kind of an intranet. There isn't an internet. I mean, everything is internal. So, and at that time, there were no smartphones, so no news was coming in. Um, but Rehnquist told us a plane had hit the World Trade Center, and then things just kind of uh, obviously escalated from there. So the country changed, history changed. Um, I had conversations with the justices, with my colleagues. A very intense period. We had um, anthrax at the court. We had to take Cipro, if you remember those days. 
Um, Rehnquist at one point said, you know, he used to encourage his clerks to go back to your hometowns, develop a, a life in the law, maybe come back to Washington, but don't kind of stay in Washington, which he called a, a swamp. Um, but he also said sometimes there's a stream of history and you kind of have to swim in it. And um, the country was at war. I went to private practice for a little bit, but really felt antsy. Um, I got one of those calls from a former colleague. Um, I was an intern in college for Dick Blumenthal, now Senator Blumenthal, who was the Attorney General of Connecticut. And a colleague of mine from that job, who was at the Treasury Department, called out of the blue. And uh, this is 2003, and said that in Iraq, they really need somebody to help with their constitutional issues as, as they're trying to work through a political process in Iraq. Um, and I decided to go. So I got to Iraq um, in early January 2004, right when the war was really starting to go south. Uh, I, arri I remember arriving, um, and frankly, at that time, we were into this thing in Iraq, and I thought a kind of patriotic duty to do all you possibly can to make, make it succeed. But even just from landing and, and driving to what was the headquarters at the time, our occupation headquarters, um, you just had a sense this was not going well. I mean, burned out hulks of trucks on the side of the road. It was called the Highway of Death. You're driving about 100 miles uh, an hour. Um, but I spent a year in Iraq, and it was a very formative experience to see how decisions in Washington um, how we can really get ourselves in trouble overseas. And then I joined the uh, National Security Council in the Bush White House in 2005 and, and served in the White House for, for those four years and ended up working very closely with President Bush uh, really to turn around the Iraq strategy. We did the surge, sent more troops to Iraq, kind of tried to stabilize things. That actually succeeded. Um, and then I stayed on with President Obama. So it was a bit of a, a curvy uh, road. Um, and then the really definitive experience with Obama was the rise of ISIS, which I know we'll talk about. But that's how I got into this. And I tell my students who ask me, what should I do? I said, look, you really never know. I think you, you'll have opportunities. Um, you might have to take some risks if you kind of want to get into this type of work. Um, but there are also real sacrifices to it. Um, but without the 9-11 attacks and without living through that, I would probably be a, a lawyer in Washington right now. <laughs> the, uh 9-11 was, I had moved to Washington after graduating from college. It was literally my first morning there. Um, wow. So I think a formative experience, obviously, for many folks. Um, I think we will certainly come back to this question of how did these three presidents make decisions and, and what your interactions were like with all of them. But let's talk about sort of the development of ISIS and sort of the, the, the launching of the most recent sort of part of your career. You know, the, the, the Syrian revolution kicks off. Many folks had thought that al-Qaeda in Iraq and what called itself the Islamic State of Iraq had been defeated, in part because of the surge. Um, but you saw in 2012, 2013, that this movement was beginning to insert itself into Syria. What did you see then? And, and how did you think about this new movement um, and its rise relative to other policy interests in the region, right? You can imagine you know, the, the, um, the terribleness of the Assad regime, the influence of Iran, et cetera. Um, what stuck out to you about ISIS? So in the summer of 2011, I actually left government a number of times and then got asked to come back. Um, summer of 2011, I was there working on a little crisis situation in Iraq. I was asked to come back by actually Joe Biden and that team. And I, so I came back for just a few months. Uh, but I was there in the summer of 2011. Um, we were dealing with a very difficult question of how to actually extend an agreement to keep our forces in Iraq, which I thought we should try to do if we could, but it ended up being extremely difficult. Um, when President Obama went out to the Rose Garden, I think he announced from the Rose Garden, I believe, but he said, given the events in Syria, um, President Assad's time has come and he, he must go. And I remember thinking, uh, we're still here in Iraq dealing with uh, a regime change and the fall of Saddam Hussein and um, Bashar al-Assad is a war criminal everything else. At that point, the death toll in Syria had been, I think, about less than 2,000, and now it's almost 500,000. Um, but I do remember being in Iraq thinking and speaking with my colleagues and the Iraqis. Like, that's a very zero-sum prescription for, mm -hmm. for the United States uh, to declare. And... Um, thought it was a mistake. I mean, I thought that that's going to back you into a, into a corner. Um, in any event, the Syrian civil war drags on. I think most of the blame obviously lies uh, squarely at the feet of Bashar al-Assad. Um, but given the declared policy to see him go, there was a um, 
really a tsunami of jihad. I mean, I don't call it that. You had mosques throughout uh, the Muslim world calling for young men to pour into Syria. Mm -hmm. um, almost 40,000, we call them foreign fighters from 110 countries around the world, came into Syria uh, to fight, to join extremist organizations. We've never seen anything like that uh, before. And if you fast forward to the 2013 timeframe, by this time I was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State um, handling the Iran and Iraq portfolio. Um, there was still, with the way Syria was being discussed, uh, the Free Syrian Army and these, these prescriptions of what was happening, which actually I think hid the fact that when you open up a vacuum, the vacuums are filled by the most brutal actors on the block. And in Syria, uh, Brian, as you know, because you've written uh, an ex excellent book about it, um, it was like the tsunami and Super Bowl of jihad. It was al-Qaeda against this new group called ISIS, which wasn't really new. Um, I felt like I knew these guys because the origin of ISIS was al-Qaeda in Iraq and uh, a terrorist named Zarqawi, who actually prescribed in, 20, in 2004 this idea to establish a state in Iraq and then Syria, caliphate. That was his plan. Um, it's a crazy plan if you read it, but that's clearly what they were doing. And you could see this happening. You could see the towns falling uh, from the Assad regime and then very quickly. And it's true. Most these were Syrians who were striving for democracy and to overthrow uh, a dictator. But it was very quickly overtaken by these extremist groups. So you could see this coming. And I was very concerned in 2013 about it. I testified about it. Um, but it was hard to actually galvanize attention. Mm -hmm. And um, even in on New Year's Day uh, 2014, so that's the time frame we're in now, 2014, New Year's Day, I, I was in Washington, I woke up, and all over social media, we were just talking about this backstage, because at the time these extremist groups were just kind of had the run of the place, um, was that ISIS had just taken Fallujah, a city in, in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I called our ambassador, he didn't really know what was happening, sure enough, they had just seized the city of Fallujah, and through social media they were creating this sense of panic that they're really spreading everywhere. Um, so you could see this ISIS just blob, like taking over, and uh, it was deeply concerning. And um, we tried to do some things to get ahead of it, but it really wasn't until the summer of 2014 where it became a global issue that we had to take on. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the and we'll come back to the your your role in developing this international coalition um, to counter ISIS, but. You know, you saw the, the initial rise of the group, but you were also there for at least most of its territorial fall, right? Um, you know, I don't know if you'll agree with this characterization, but this, the, you know, most of the time people think about ISIS as a Syria-based entity, but you could argue that, that Mosul, a, a city in Iraq, the largest city that ISIS ultimately controlled, was its sort of you know, territorial center of gravity. You were on the ground when that city was retaken by Iraqi forces. You know, what was, like, what was that like, both the fighting itself, but also, you know, what does it mean for this entity to, to lose territory in this way? Because we've seen that, that, that trend continue over the last several months. So Mosul fell in June of 2014. I was in Iraq. So Mosul is a city of over a million people. Um, and it fell to ISIS, and then ISIS started pouring down towards Baghdad. They broke through uh, from Syria to the west, going, really, there are two rivers in Iraq, and they're pouring into Baghdad. And um, as a senior official on the ground, first of all, again, it was by far my worst day in government service, because you kind of see this coming, and then, you know, um, it was the worst possible scenario. Complete disintegration of Iraqi security forces. Uh, I hightailed it back to Baghdad. We had a video conference with President Obama and the team, and as the senior official out there, you're asked, you know, what's happening? And I had to give the honest answer. We have no idea what's happening. This is, you know, the fog and friction of war, um, but it was, we just didn't have any information, and there was a psychological collapse in the country. At one point, I was walking into a, a video conference to uh, brief the White House, to talk to the White House and the president and the whole team. And I got a call from a senior Iraqi official that hundreds of ISIS gun trucks have just entered Baghdad and Baghdad's falling to ISIS. That turned out not to be true, but we didn't know if it was true. And they were massacring thousands of people on their way to Baghdad and putting it up on YouTube and these social media platforms. Um, so uh, it was terrible. And at that point, its height, 
again, incredible to think about. They had 40,000 square kilometers, a state. They had 8 million people under their domain, uh, revenues of a billion dollars a year. Uh, and um, the borders, a lot of the borders were frankly open to these extremists to come into Syria. And they were planning and plotting major attacks against us. So um, this was something that uh, we, had to, we had to take on. And so we developed a strategy to really do a couple things. Um, President Obama was cautious because he did not want, to, want us to get over-invested in another Middle East conflict at the time as the guy on the ground dealing with this. So that, was, that can be frustrating. Um, but looking back, I actually think he had the right, uh, the right approach and the right instincts. Mm -hmm. I mean, he used to say he wants to put guardrails on this. Um, the guardrails being a very careful air campaign. Um, U.S. forces should not be doing the fighting and taking casualties. I very much agreed with that, having lived through the Iraq experience. But that means it's going to take longer. We had to big, build a big international coalition to uh, share the burden so the U.S. isn't taking this on ourselves. Bipartisan support in Congress, making sure we had a strong basis of international legitimacy. And do a couple things. One, we had to take back the physical caliphate. The thing, one of the magnets for ISIS was that they declared a caliphate. So Baghdadi, who, again, just popped up uh, very, very well timed for this talk, but just popped up a week ago. Um, only the second time he's ever shown his face in the last decade. The other time was the summer of 2014 from Mosul declaring a caliphate. And um, when he declared a caliphate, he said, you have a religious duty to all Muslims around the world to come in and join the caliphate. And this was a rallying cry for so many people. So you had to defeat this entity, this physical space where they had sanctuary, but you also had to develop a global mm -hmm. campaign and a global architecture, which we did with the coalition. What was that like? I mean, building a coalition, you know, one of the great challenges of building any coalition, right? It, it, it seems that every country could agree that ISIS was a problem, but they, everybody prioritizes those problems differently. This, you know, the Saudis may have seen Iran as more of a problem. The Turks see the Kurds as a problem. How do you get agreement on, you know, it seems, maybe it seems obvious sitting here, it seems obvious to me that, you know, ISIS should be the priority, but that's not obvious if you're sitting in different capitals around the world. How do you pull those people together? So it's a great question, and it's American leadership. So I think um, the unique value, and I am concerned it's being lost as we speak, but the unique value of the United States of America is our ability to build alliances, to convene nations, um, that's how we have comparative advantage against, say, the Chinese and the Russians, our other you know, great power competitors. They can't do that, um, although China's now trying. But we can convene allies and build alliances. So we started, uh, when it came to ISIS, with 12 countries. We actually met in Saudi Arabia with 12 countries. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. Uh, when you <laughs> went around the table, uh, various countries, I won't, but they wanted to throw in their own, OK, this is a coalition against ISIS. We're going to get them. And it's a coalition against pick your enemy of that country. And we said, no, <laughs> this is ISIS. And it's even different than Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a different thing. Yeah. It's a different entity, which we can talk about. But this is ISIS. So it was a very, um, the essence of strategy, of any strategy on any issue, whether you're in national security or even just generally life, is you want to align your objectives with your uh, resources, your ends, or your ends, ways, and means. So your objectives with your means of being resources and how you're going to achieve them. So we were very focused on the objective. This is ISIS. We're going to defeat the physical caliphate, and we're going to build a global network of information sharing so we can all protect ourselves. And if we add to that mission, if we throw on Iran or if we throw on uh, other groups to this particular mission set, we're going to fail. And so uh, it was very mission directed. And then it started to expand from there. The one thing we had going for us, not only the leadership of the United States, and I think uh, the president set that direction, um, uh, ISIS was a common threat to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so you could kind of see it. So everybody wanted to be a part of this. And as we started to have a little bit of success, um, it really worked. I mean, in Iraq, we had 22 countries send their military forces into Iraq. Uh, so this wasn't just a US entity in terms of stabilizing areas once they're retaken, returning refugees, which um, particularly in Iraq has been pretty successful. Those resources came mostly from the coalition, not US taxpayers. And this information sharing network um, of multiple countries to really protect ourselves, uh, track these people as they try to cross borders 
was pretty successful. Mm -hmm. But it was U.S. leadership and the kind of hard day-to-day -day, uh, gutted out diplomacy. I mean, to me, this is one of the best examples of why uh, diplomacy is central to a, a, a cohesive national security strategy. One of the things that has concerned me, though, you know, maybe even preceding the invasion of Iraq, is sort of the militarization of the way we conceptualize national security. Do, do you agree with that? I mean, is that a fair characterization on my part? And you know, have we devalued diplomacy generally? I mean, what you're, the story you're telling here, I think illustrates the central value of diplomacy to national security. Is that so? There's a study going on about kind of what we did. I was talking to some of the, the researchers. And we, again, correcting a lot of the mistakes we've made in the past, we did really try to fuse what the military was doing with, with our diplomatic infrastructure. So I think having a presidential envoy, having that office, working hand in glove with the military was quite critical. So um, military to military relationships are one thing, but decisions from capitals to send their military forces somewhere, that's a political decision. You need a diplomat to do that. Mm -hmm. um, even alliances on the ground, uh, there are strategic alliances and capitals and then alliances on the ground, a coalition of Arabs and Kurds, for example, to fight ISIS in Syria. That's a diplomatic uh, job. And um, so the diplomatic element of anything is quite essential. I mean, definitely, just look at the, at the budgets. Um, the budget that President Trump just submitted to Congress some months ago, um, it increases defense spending by 5%. Okay, that's fine. Um, and it, it proposes a decrease in State Department funding by almost 30%. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't make any sense. I was just in China, and if you look at what they're doing, they're increasing their defense spending, I think, by 8% last year. By dollar amounts doesn't amount to ours, but by 8%, that's a lot. But they're increasing their spending on their Ministry of Foreign Affairs and diplomacy by 15%. So, you know, that balance, I think, is being lost. And if we, if we really strengthen our military tool and hollow out our uh, diplomatic arm, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, we won the Cold War by having a strong military um, to back up very smart, uh, experienced, and well-resourced diplomacy, if you look at the history. Mm -hmm. So um, investing in diplomacy in a diplomatic corps uh, is critical. The State Department, I was tr just statistically, our most senior ambassadors, our most senior officials are leaving the State Department. Um, recruiting is significantly down. People taking the Forest Service exam are down. I think Secretary Mike Pompeo doesn't like this trend. I think he's trying to get ahead of it and to uh, restore some confidence. But, you know, the budgets and the dollars speak. And the direction is set from the top. Mm -hmm. So speaking about it, there's a, the questions are starting to come in. We're going to have no shortage. Um, the, uh, but there's a series here that, that get at this question of, of having worked for three presidents. And um, can you describe how did these three presidents differ in their decision-making process? And then specifically, how did this, you know, I mean, perhaps it's a little bit different with the, the, in the Bush administration, but from the, Trump, from the uh, Obama administration to the Trump administration, how did the strategy evolve or not evolve when it came to dealing with ISIS? And there are a couple of questions here about the rules of engagement, um, okay. specifically. So the three presidents, um, I have seen this now, so obviously three very different presidents. Um, I think the key thing is that in advising a president, I was much closer to President Bush and then Obama than Trump. The Trump administration is a whole different thing, which I'll talk about. But how does the president prioritize his time? Uh, what information is getting to the president? How does he decipher many different streams of information? Because often you're, you're acting in these jobs without full information. Um, and a key one when it comes to war policy is how does a president conceptualize his role as a commander in chief? Mm -hmm. So again, I was with President Bush in the four years of his second term. And what I saw in the first two years was that his, the way he conceptualized the role of commander in chief is kind of the classic, the classic conceptualization. The president sets the direction and then you delegate to the chain of command, meaning your secretary of defense and your commanders to then go out and do it. Um, the problem with that in the first two years of that second term, which I saw, was that the information coming up through the chain of command at the time, uh, Don Rumsfeld and the commanders, uh, painted a much uh, rosier picture of what was happening than what 
we were sending up to the president every night. We sent a four-page memo up to him uh, called a POTUS note every night with, here's, what's, here was, here's what we think is happening, here are casualties for the day. And I remember President Bush telling us this is pretty grim reading. But how do you make sense of those two streams of information? His, his ethos was, I think, I don't want to speak for him, but my experience, I'm going to delegate and I have to trust my, my chain of command, which I think most presidents take that. However, by 2006, the war had just, the bottom had fallen out, and it was impossible to say we're about to turn a corner. And we, we did the surge, which sent 20 to 30,000 more American troops to Iraq. I was with President Bush when he addressed the nation and made that decision. That was a seriously unpopular decision. I think we had a poll in the West Wing about would Americans support sending 20 to 30,000 American troops to Iraq. Came back at something like 27% would support that. That's a pretty low number. Another poll at the time, do you believe in alien piloted UFOs? It was something like uh, <laughs> double. <laughs> so it was a very unpopular, very gutsy, gutsy decision uh, President Bush made. But I was with Steve Hadley in the West Wing that night, and uh, President Bush came in and saw us and said uh, something to the effect, I remember, I'm taking charge of this thing. And for the last, so he fired his Secretary of Defense, he fired, well, the generals were changing, but he handpicked commanders that he trusted. And for the last two years of his presidency, probably the most hands-on commander-in-chief in modern time. I don't think this has really been written or explained. I mean, we had a, every, every morning a briefing on Iraq, every Monday for the last two years of the Bush administration, a meeting with the national security team, Mm -hmm. uh, Condi Rice, who of course is a colleague at Stanford, and um, Bob Gates, and Dave Petraeus in the field, and Brian Crocker, mm -hmm. the ambassador. And then my job, I was going back and forth from Iraq to Washington. And that really helped because a lot of these decisions, uh, they can only be resolved in the Oval Office because they're military, they're political, they're economic. Mm -hmm. So that's a key question. And um, with President Obama, I think kind of a similar experience. Um, again, the rise of ISIS, the kind of the caution, um, I think it's fair to say he didn't want to get back into another Middle East war. It's the last thing he wanted. Um, but eventually the facts caught up with the process. We had a potential genocide of a minority religious, religious group called Yazidis in northern Iraq. We had um, uh, Americans beheaded. So we did cross the Rubicon. And from that decision, uh, I spent an awful lot of time with President Obama on, on implementing the plan. Uh, very hand, he was very hands-on. Um, some accuse him of being micromanaging. I think actually when you're, a, I am strongly the view now, and this gets to President Trump's more recent decision to uh, say we should leave Syria, but now we might not be. If you're going to send Americans into harm's way as a president, you need to be engaged and knowledgeable of what's going on. I really, I've seen our people out there. Uh, you know many of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I've known people have sacrificed their lives. Do not, as a president, send your people overseas to do this type of work and then be disengaged. I just think that is a formula for a disaster. Okay, so President Trump. Um, obviously the election in November and uh, we're getting ready for the Trump transition. Um, another transition from one party to another in the middle of a war. It's not a red hot war, it's a small war, but it's a war. Make no mistake, it is a war. And it was unclear, the new team, if they really had their act together, who's gonna, you know, who's gonna take the briefings, um, but we prepared a, a transition packet for them. Um, it was Mike Flynn that called me a couple weeks before the inauguration to ask to come see him. This is pretty, they're gonna take over the country in two weeks. Um, but we had a pretty in-depth briefing, and it was clear, you know, President Trump ran saying, I have a secret plan on ISIS, and uh, the generals aren't doing anything. Turns out he didn't have a plan. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a pretty good plan, a pretty good strategy. Mm -hmm. And there Did were, you know Mike Flynn from your previous work? I didn't know him personally, no. Okay. I have to say, in the, in the briefings with him, uh, it was professional, and, um, you know, this part of, this transition actually went pretty well, because we had a good strategy, and there were elements of the strategy that required presidential decisions. Mm -hmm. One of them was how are we going to take down Raqqa, which was ISIS, their capital, in which they were actually planning significant attacks against us out of Raqqa. So we had to do it. That's a, that was a difficult question um, because we had to arm the Kurds, and the Turks didn't like that. So that was one decision. Another decision um, that we teed up for President Trump, which he then made. We did a strategic review the first two months of the Trump administration. Uh, 
overseen by my office and Tillerson and Mattis, very professional. We teed up three questions for President Trump. Um, they went to him in writing, he made them, and we were able to execute the campaign uh, even faster. One of the decisions he just delegated, to talk about delegating, he kind of threw out the rule book. Everything's delegated down. Mm -hmm. Nothing really came back to the White House, which as the guy executing, we already had a pretty good plan. I actually found this was, we were moving fast. We were moving pretty swiftly. I mean, it worked. It was when uh, he would read about something in the newspaper, or see something on TV, and he would weigh into it when things would mm -hmm. um, go a little sideways. Yeah, interesting. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Do you think that people understand this sort of continuity? And, I, and, and it, let me sort of open that question up a little bit wider. You, you said that, make no mistake, this was a war. And I, and I think that's an important point because I, th I'm, I think that mistake gets made a lot, that the American public didn't sort of understand the degree to which Americans were in harm's way. Um, and, and that has concerned me. I'm not sure that we are, are well equipped to, to win when we don't have a broad sort of social consensus and commitment to these things. Do you, is that is that right, or is it possible in these sort of settings where we've got a relatively limited allocation of of forces to to achieve success, strategic success, without that sort of broad um, political and social support? I mean, it's a good question. My sense on ISIS, I spent a lot of time in Congress with both parties, is that there's a pretty strong support for what we're doing. Um, Again, the way the, the way the campaign was designed was that, so we are not over invested. We're not spending significant amounts of U.S. taxpayer money. We're, we're not, uh, yeah, knock on wood, we're not taking significant number of casualties, but we are still taking casualties. I mean, yeah. but in Syria until about six weeks ago, we'd only lost two American lives in Syria. Uh, again, compared to the Iraq war, um, you know, you've won a life. I, I, and I know a lot of these guys, so I hesitate even saying that, but just compared to other conflicts, there's no comparison. Raqqa is a city in which ISIS was controlling this entire city, and uh, they were sitting there and planning, and because of all these people came all over from around the world with real expertise, and without getting into any, but you had airline pilots, you had engineers, you had all sorts of people dedicated to ISIS. So they're sitting there in Raqqa planning all sorts of stuff, <laughs> and they're doing it in apartment buildings with hundreds of people. So um, it made it very difficult. So we had to get them out of Raqqa. There was no way to do this in just precise uh, airstrikes. Um, we ended up taking Raqqa from ISIS without losing a single American life. Um, coalition, one French special forces officer was killed in the Battle of Raqqa. The force we built of Syrians, we built a force of 60,000 Syrians. Uh, they took Raqqa at significant cost. Mm -hmm. So it is still a war, but the, the, the uh, burdens are are more diffuse. Mm -hmm. I think that's the model because these things don't really end. Mm -hmm. It's this is a it's kind of like physical caliphate is defeated. So the days of major urban combat, I hope, is over. It is terrible, and we should never get ourselves into that situation again. Um, but um, you have to stay on it. It's kind of like police work and crime. You never get crime down to zero. You need to stay on it. I think. A light U.S. footprint, very small, working with local actors, making sure you keep pressure on these uh, networks is very important. Mm -hmm. And a president who's engaged and sets priorities. I am concerned, and I, look, uh, President Trump has every right to uh, talk about the achievement of defeating the physical caliphate. It is an achievement, but it is not the end of ISIS. And when you say we won and it's over, just the prioritization starts to uh, mm -hmm. uh, dissipate. And uh, that, that concerns me because we have to stay on top of this. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that's, that's clearly on everyone's mind is that we've, we've seen these recent attacks in Sri Lanka, the really horrible set of attacks that according to reporting today, some of those, at least one of those bombers had been in Syria uh, and trained and perhaps more than that. Um, 
you know, we've got the speech from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, you know, the supposed caliph. Um, you know, how do you think about ISIS today? What does a campaign against them look like? And in particular, you know, there are some questions here, but how, how do you deal with the ideology? How do you deal with the, the fact that this movement was able to inspire so many people from all over the world to want to be a part of it? So when we, again, we built the coalition, it's, it's global, it's 75 countries. We have uh, information sharing hubs around the world, uh, one in Jordan with dozens of countries, really kind of, that's how you just connect dots. So an attack like Sri Lanka should not happen. I mean, we're pretty good at stopping very sophisticated things like this. The last time ISIS pulled something like that off was Paris in November 2015, which had come from Raqqa through Syria, uh, infiltrated a team into Paris and killed over 100 people in the streets of, of France. We've gotten pretty good at stopping that kind of stuff, and it seems now that there was information on this network in Sri Lanka. Um, I remember my office, actually, the way I kind of divided labor in my office, I was so just so focused intensively on uh, the campaign in Iraq and Syria, um, but given the global focus, my deputy, who's a very experienced uh, retired three-star general named Terry Wolf, mm-hmm. uh, focused on the global network. And we had a task force that met every morning about global threats. I remember the briefings on Sri Lanka uh, before I actually departed. Um, but this gets into prioritization. We have, a, we have a CT architect called Counterterrorism Architecture. There's a bureau at the State Department that does counterterrorism. They're very focused on al-Qaeda and other things. It's different. Mm-hmm. I... Um, when the Trump team came in, there was a question, do we keep this ISIS uh, specialized focus, which was really mine and my office. I, I said, yes, you have to. It's a different, it's a different thing. ISIS is totally different than Al-Qaeda. Um, I am, the minute I heard about those Sri Lanka attacks, I knew it was ISIS. Al-Qaeda doesn't attack churches. That's right. Uh, Al-Qaeda, it's very difficult for them to pull off this multiple suicide bomber thing. This was an ISIS attack. I had no, just no question. And I don't think we found the direct link to Syria, but there's almost no doubt in my mind uh, this came from Syria, mm-hmm. or at least there's a connection to Syria. But also, it's a similar story. There was one preacher in one mosque who's radical, who radicalizes people in his neighborhood, and it kind of spreads. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've traveled all around the world, from Malaysia to Belgium to everywhere else where they're dealing with this problem. Yeah, I heard the same problem all around the world. Mm-hmm. And um, some members of our coalition, uh, I used to say, I hear the same problem all around the world. And some of this stuff, the textbooks and things are coming from, you know, you. Um, But I have to say, these countries are taking action. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has changed since 2014 when when this started. Um, But the Sri Lanka attacks, it's something we really need to look at because uh, that never should have happened. That type, it's very difficult to pull off a sophisticated attack like that with eight suicide bombers, very high level of explosives, clearly, um, a lot of sophistication Mm -hmm. expertise. And there was a breakdown in security. I mean, they they had indications and warnings and didn't act. Yeah, all the bombs detonated. That rarely happens. Somebody knew what they were doing. There are a number of questions here about, you know, what are the... What are the key lessons that you've learned? Are there, are there decisions that you were involved in or that you were subject to, maybe is another way to put it, that um, if you could go back and, and change one or two of them, you know, what, what would you look at? I don't know if I can change them. I would just say the policy, no regime change. I think uh, regime change, um, I mean, there's a lot of terrible things. Are you thinking about Assad? Are you thinking about Saddam Hussein? I'm just saying generally. I'm looking generally at Libya. We had a major ISIS problem. In Libya, you don't have sectarian violence. You don't have that kind of problems. But ISIS filled the vacuum very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole network from sub-Saharan Africa going up to Libya that's al-Qaeda extremists, uh, ISIS, where you have weak, fragile states. Uh, Yemen, very serious problem with al-Qaeda. Also, stuff that Iran is doing uh, is a serious problem in in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Um, But Iraq opened a vacuum, which was filled by Zarqawi, and which is the ideology of ISIS. Uh, Syria, when the state started to erode, the vacuum was filled very rapidly by, uh, by these groups. So we have to be very, very careful before we back ourselves into zero-sum corners. Mm-hmm. And um, when a state structure really starts to fray, um, I think the assumption we need to have is it's going to be filled very quickly by uh, really bad guys. And um, so that, I mean, that is one lesson over the last 
couple decades that I think we need to be very careful. Um, it, it gets into the, the fundamental element of strategy that I mentioned before, um, which I'll be teaching later uh, this fall, winter in Stanford. But strategy is aligning your ends, ways, and means. Mm -hmm. And as any citizen, as, as, or as a policymaker, or as an advisor to the president, when you hear objectives set by the US government, the question to ask is, OK, that's a very ambitious objective. What are our resources to achieve it, and how are we going to achieve it? Mm -hmm. And our country gets ourselves in trouble where we set objectives that we have no idea how we're possibly going to achieve them, or we're not, we're not willing to uh, devote the resources to uh, do it. Again, when, when Obama said Assad must go in the summer of 2011, uh, that call was echoed at the same, on the same day by Sarkozy of France and Merkel of Germany and uh, Cameron of the UK. Um, but Sarkozy said Assad must go, but we are, we are not going to intervene unless we have an international mandate, which meant a UN Security Council resolution, which wasn't going to come because you have the Russians there. Mm -hmm. So right away, you've declared an objective that you're not really willing to act upon. Um, and that's how you get in trouble. So aligning your ends, ways, and means, just the fundamental element of national security strategy, but also life. If you want to get in shape, you got to like, how am I going to do it? I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to you know, mm -hmm. eat right. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to set objectives without thinking through how we're really going to achieve them. Do you think that we are in a position where our political discourse domestically allows us to set those objectives honestly? Because I worry that it's not. That's a great question. I think, uh, yeah, I think our, the House divided, it doesn't really stand very well. And so you just look at, and this gets way beyond what was my writ, but um, uh, the national security strategy that came out of the Trump administration in December of 2017 mm -hmm. is pretty good. It talks about the era we are entering, the kind of the era of uh, un unparalleled American influence and power is changing. We are now in an era of what it calls great power competition with China and Russia. So it defines it very clearly and says some things that we can, we can do. Um, but we need, to, we need to pull ourselves together as a country if we're going to take on these challenges. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and obviously the, the, um, the rising influence of China is something that we need to grapple with and think about how to deal with. And, um, but it means we need a strong diplomatic core. We need investments in the right types of technologies and things. And mm -hmm. it takes a country that's pretty united, to, I think, to take it on. Mm -hmm. There are a number of questions in here um, that get beyond sort of ISIS specifically, but dealing with the, the broader Middle East, in particular the Trump administration's approach to Iran and backing out of uh, the, you know, the Obama administration's Iran deal. How do you see that kind of dynamic shaping the region and, and our alliances more, more generally? So Iran is a real problem uh, in, the, in the region. They're a regional threat, they're a regional player. Uh, I've dealt with them directly through negotiations. I've also faced off with them uh, in Iraq. We, this summer, I spent the whole summer in Iraq last, uh, last year because Iraq had a, an election in which um, Muqtada al-Sadr, the nationalist, very kind of firebrand cleric, won the election. And the number two party to one was heavily backed by Iran. So we had the possibility of a government that was very closely tied to Iran and that would kind of kick us out of the country. Um, I spent the summer there, as did Qasem Soleimani, who's the head of the Iranian Quds Force, who had a very different agenda. Um, I think we got the better of that one. I think the government that came out is very pro-international engagement, I think pro-West. Mm -hmm. They have strong relations with Iran, but also very strong relations with Saudi Arabia and the region. Mm -hmm. Prime Minister of Iraq was just in Germany. Um, so I, I've been dealing with Iranians uh, in various ways over the last decade. And um, it's a regional threat. Um, we know what they want to do in Syria against the Israelis. I just wrote an article in Foreign Affairs about this. Mm -hmm. I think the Israelis are pretty good at protecting themselves, but we can help them and should. Um, but I don't think we should overly exaggerate the threat. Sometimes these guys have an economy. Iran is an economy that's smaller than our, our poorest state, Mississippi. And um, their amount of defense spending pales in comparison to our allies in the region. Um, I think we need to be smart about it. I think we, America wins by a combination of pressure, which we need, um, but also openness and engagement. So um, something like a visa travel ban where no Iranians can come here anymore. I don't think that actually helps us in the long term in terms of actually getting after what threatens us in Iran. 
Iran has the most pro-West population uh, in the region by most opinion polls. Um, sometimes that's cited to me as a way that, oh, we should really kind of be friendly with Iran. Well, no, we can't because their, their government is controlled by uh, people who are fundamentally hostile to us. So we have to be very clear-eyed about this threat. Um, I think retaining some sanctions is the right thing, maintaining pressure. But again, it's ends, ways, and means. It's pressure for what? And I think Bill Burns was here a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago. Um, Bill Burns is a, one of our most experienced ambassadors who recently retired, or retired uh, in the Obama administration, but wrote a great book. He's a real expert on Iran. Um, but the way he puts his, our objectives uh, on Iran appear to be uh, either the regime will implode or there will be a popular uprising to overthrow it. Mm -hmm. And none of those things historically are likely to happen just through pressure. So we're building up leverage against the Iranians, but I would just ask to what end. This kind of ends, ways, and means is, is very important to keep asking month by month as this goes on. You spent 14 years, essentially, working on these issues within the U.S. government with a few, few stints elsewhere. Um, in incredibly taxing jobs. Incredibly important, incredibly difficult. Um, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Why did you ultimately leave? I mean, hanging out in Palo Alto is pretty good. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> so I had been doing it a long time, and um, uh, my wife and I had a baby in January of 20, uh, 2018. I went to Syria about five days after my daughter was born. So, you know, these things take a bit of a, bit of a toll. Um, so I was planning on coming out here in the spring, mm -hmm. and so, you know, March time frame. Um, what happened at the end of last year was we had put a strategy together about, about Syria and the coalition, which I helped build and, and was leading. And it, there were some disagreements. I had some real disagreements with the White House about some of our objectives, which I thought were overly ambitious. but. The bottom line was we had to be prepared to stay in Syria, at least for the foreseeable future. We weren't just going to declare defeat of physical caliphate and leave. And we had then briefed that to our coalition partners. I spent um, a couple of days with, with Secretary Mattis in Canada with our military contributors briefing the plan. And we're going, we plan to stay in Syria, not forever, but for a foreseeable period. Here's why we need your commitments and we need you to be with us. Um, I went into Syria and met with our Syrian partners who've been fighting and dying and told them. And I was always very careful with everybody I talked to because I don't want to, I never overpromise as an American official. Um, but at least we're going to be with you for a while. Um, and then President Trump suddenly just upended that whole thing. So, and, and said, uh, we are going to leave Syria and uh, in a fairly rapid clip. Mm -hmm. So, I, I heard that news in Iraq. Um, I was in Iraq. I, I hightailed it back to Washington. I tried to call my coalition partners in France and the UK, and it was hard to even brief what the new plan, because we had our talking points. For, for the first time in my career, I could not deliver the talking points with a straight face. So that was a time to go. So I really accelerated my, my departure and, and departed the end of that week. And Secretary Mattis ended up uh, resigning a couple of days before me. I did not know he was going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, he had actually been recruiting me to come over to the Pentagon. So I, it was a surprise, um, which I wasn't going to do. But it was a surprise that he left because I didn't think he had any intention to do that. Um, but he did the right thing. And I think the, the attention those decisions gave, it clearly uh, got under President Trump's skin because he was tweeting about it over that, that week of Christmas, including about, uh, about me a couple of times. Um, but in any event, that's fine. Um, but clearly there was a uh, reflection that maybe this decision was a little impulsive. And so they did review it, and now uh, it's at least been slowed down, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. what, what should the standard be for a, a civil servant in government? Um, you know, how do you weigh that decision of, you know, am I, is it more important for me to be here in trying to push an agenda that I think is correct versus resigning and stepping away. I mean, I think there's, there's been discussion around that, there was, you know, particularly around Secretary Mattis and, and his decision to leave the administration. But you know, setting aside the Trump administration, as, a, as, a, as you 
sort of special entity, but like how should civil servants think about that problem? And we all, and how should people generally? I mean, we all face ethical dilemmas in our, in our jobs and how, but, but you've had that weight on you. Um, how did you think about that choice? What I would have said before that week was don't resign because um, if you feel you can make a difference, this is really important stuff for the country. And um, so I, I, I rarely agreed with people who resigned. And then, but in my case, this was my issue. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the issue that I uh, was appointed to manage and execute. Uh, I was the guy who had relationships around the world with the coalition. Uh, I think they trusted my word. And um, so in my letter to Secretary Pompeo, it, it was very polite, but it said, I'm not, I am not the guy to execute this new approach effectively. Mm-hmm. And so at the bottom line was, if, if you really can't be effective, mm-hmm. um, there's no point in being there. And um, I also had some just real, when I came back to Washington, I said, okay, if, if we are leaving Syria, mm-hmm. This gets into ends, ways, means. That means our objectives, which are pretty ambitious, our objectives in Syria, as stated by the U.S. government right now, are basically we want all the Iranians to leave Syria, we want to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS, and we want uh, fundamental reforms of the Assad regime, eventually, to the extent to which his regime would fundamentally be totally different. We don't call it regime change, but that's kind of what it is. Those are pretty ambitious objectives. So, okay, if, you're, if we're pulling out all of our forces, so all of our means are being pulled out of there, we at least have to rethink our objectives. Mm-hmm. And um, the answer was, no, 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 we're same objectives. So that doesn't make any sense. So it was a combination of, um, it, I couldn't be effective in my role. I couldn't, uh, with integrity and confidence, talk to the people around the world that I had worked with so closely. Um, so someone else had to carry on that new approach. Mm-hmm. Now my successor is a very experienced diplomat I've worked with for almost you know, 15 years or so. So it was in decent hands, but that's the key thing. If, if it's your file and you can't be effective at all and the policy is going in a totally different direction than you had, uh, at this, at, that's when it's, it's time, to, when time to go to state the principle that I fundamentally don't agree with this decision. This is going to mm-hmm. lead the country into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that was the decision. I think the Trump administration is just a weird thing. I mean, someone said to me that you know, the, the, crazy, the craziness of the White House eventually catches up with everybody. I got advice very early on in the, in the Trump administration, having worked in three administrations, that you have to have good relations with the West Wing, because that's the kind of locus of decision making. And mm-hmm. um, so the Obama team leaves, and the Trump team comes in, and I, I had a pretty good colleague in the West. There was a couple pretty experienced people in there who had served in the Bush administration. And I called him and said, hey, who should I kind of interface with? Like, um, and the advice I got back was, don't even worry about it. Like, the West Wing is such a circus. Focus on Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, at least for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being very good advice because they were talking to the president, and um, it allowed me to kind of execute without trying to weigh into what was a revolving door of chaos. Why do you think, let me flip that around, why do you think President Trump kept you on? Uh, you know, because I, I, I think he came in and really wanted to clean house from the Obama administration. It's been a hallmark of the way, you know, I think that's a fair characterization. You're one of the few few officials that, that stayed um, and brought a lot of continuity to this fight against ISIS. Do you think that that was something that the new administration understood was going to happen, that they really wanted, or is, is there another story there? Um, Obama said to me, I understand you're staying on, thank you. And I, was, I remember saying, I don't, nobody's asked me. So <laughs> um, I think in the, in the military <laughs> chain of command, you had uh, Joe Dunford, who was a real understated hero for our country, mm-hmm. what Joe Dunford has done. I mean, that guy, I've seen it on my file, but what he's done, military-to-military relations with allies and adversaries around the world. Um, obviously, he's staying in place. I work very closely with him, our CENTCOM commander, our special forces command. 
I think they felt very strongly they, they wanted me to stay in place, just given how symbiotic we were, and that this was the middle. Mm -hmm. We're facing an inflection point with, we were in the middle of the Battle of Mosul, we're about to do Raqqa, uh, and the global threats were still there. So um, I think they, it was a request that came also from DOD. But in any event, um, Mike Flynn called me and asked me a few days before the inauguration. And I said, yeah, I'll stay for you know, six months or so. Um, but ended up turning turned into two years just because of the the pace of the campaign and um, and what we had to do. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, let me ask you and perhaps put myself on the spot a little bit. But did, did you know if you could go back to 2013, 2014, what advice would you have for social media companies? You talked about the spread of this material online at that point. Um, you know, there's an interesting question here about did you consider, did Iraq consider shutting down social media at that time? We saw Sri Lanka do that after the, the recent attacks. Is that, was that sort of thing on the table? And, and even if not, what sort of advice um, would you have given the social media companies or what sort of demands, perhaps is another way to put it, would you have liked to have made of the social media companies at the time? It's a good, I gotta be honest with my, at the time, I would see this stuff, but it was also a great information source for me and my job. I was getting more information from open sources than I was. Honestly, I would, my wife's here, she would, I would be up, sometimes up until seeing like this is all <laughs> over the place. She's shaking her head up. And there. they were very transparent about what they're doing. ISIS yeah. would say, we just launched the battle of such and such, and now we're going to take these three towns. And then they would do it. And then I would go into... <laughs> I'd go into work in the morning, and uh, you go into your skiff, which is where you get your highest, uh, your top, top secret, you know, SCI information and everything. And I'd be like, I already know all this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was used, I was actually, it was, it was a useful uh, resource, uh, honestly. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think if I was honest with how I was seeing it back then, I wasn't like, my God, they got to take this stuff down. Now, in 2014, with the massacres and the stuff they were putting on and the bloodletting and the beheading videos, totally mm -hmm. different thing. Um, that, that really kind of started in, in a significant way in, in, um, in 2014. Yeah. When you saw, there are a number of questions that we've gotten from the audience about, that sort of essentially are expressing incredulity at the notion that ISIS grew so quickly. And um, were they getting support from, you know, moneyed interest around the Middle East, from states potentially? Um, how do we think about that dynamic? Because there, you know, there, there certainly is the, the suggestion that, you know, people were traveling through Turkey, people were traveling from around the region, in part because they hoped that these, you know, travelers would help overthrow the Assad regime. Um, how should states be making a calculation about people like ISIS? Because there have been efforts to instrumentalize, you know, jihadi figures like these folks in the past, including by the Assad regime during the, the you know, the, the initial invasion of Iraq. How, how do you think about that? And I feel like everybody needs to learn this lesson. You don't play with these people, but then everybody forgets that lesson. So thoughts on this? So I'm going to be a little careful here, but... Yeah, um, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> But it's like the instru instrumentalization of some of these groups is a key, is a key uh, issue. I do not think there was a conscious effort from any country to support ISIS. Uh, ISIS is a, mm -hmm. uh, is a whole different animal. But when all these people are passing through borders and heading into Syria to fight in the Syrian civil war, when weapons are being flooded into Syria and money... Uh, it's groups like ISIS that are going to take uh, take control. So, you know, I've been pretty hard on Turkey in some of my writings, um, but I'm a friend of Turkey. I've worked closely with Turkey for almost a decade. I first met President Erdogan in 2007 on a trip with Condi Rice, and I've dealt with these guys for a long time. But a lot of this stuff was coming from Turkey, and so we had a lot of conversations with Turkey even early on in 2014, like, hey, um, just look at what's happening in your border here. And what you used to hear back it's not just Turkey, but a lot of other regional players, is, look, that's the second war. The first war is, is Assad, and the second war will clean these guys out. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, our response was, look, 
exactly as you said, this is like you're raising a baby alligator in your, in your basement. Right now it might be a baby alligator. Eventually this is going to be a big, gigantic alligator. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And ISIS has attacked the Turks. They've attacked everybody. So it wasn't so much the supporting ISIS. It was just the amount of uh, military material being poured into Syria for the civil war matched, I must say, by the amount of military material being poured in by Iran in particular and Hezbollah to fuel this conflict, mm-hmm. just created this dynamic in which groups like ISIS take advantage. So it's not so much, there's not state sponsor of ISIS, but it's, they take advantage mm-hmm. of this uh, vacuum opening up. One more thing on instrumentalization at the local level. You know, we would try to recruit because we're not going to do the fighting, so we had to recruit. In Iraq, we're working with a government and army, it's one thing. Um, but we're recruiting tribes, we're recruiting people to fight ISIS. Oftentimes, you would sit with uh, the sheikhs or whoever who would say, I have 5,000 5, men ready to go fight ISIS. It usually meant they had about you know, 500. Um, but they would say, but here are, the, here are the 10 things that we need. And they have a number of political demands and everything else. And I just, I had no, pati- I had no patience for that. I said, I'm not, we're not getting in the souk with you for this. Mm-hmm. Because uh, this is ISIS. They are... Uh, in, first of all, a lot of these were the Sunni Arab sheikhs, but they're, they're killing your people. Mm-hmm. Um, they have thousands of Yazidi women that they're raping. They're committing genocide against Christians and other minority groups. It's all happening. So I, we're not, I'm not going to bargain about, okay, you'll fight ISIS if, these ten, if you get these 10 things. Um, either you want to take back your area from these psychopaths or you don't. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty hard-headed thing. Um, because don't instrumentalize a group like ISIS. Mm-hmm. It's just not, I have no patience for it. But mm-hmm. it does, it, it does tend, to, tend to happen, not at the strategic level, particularly at the very local tactical level. Interesting. We're now at a point where ISIS no longer you know, controls swaths of territory in Syria and Iraq, but they still have underground cells across, you know, in, in both places, in a, in a much wider network. You know, sometimes this gets framed as how do you win the peace? How do you rebuild these places? What does the strategy look like for doing that, particularly in a place like Syria, where it is still extraordinarily fractious, and it's not as if the government has full control of the country. There still is a a civil war going on. Um, Do we have a strategy for sort of rebuilding this place in a cohesive way so that there is potentially sustainable bulwark against ISIS? Or is this kind of, is the strategy kind of putting our fingers in the dam for the time being? So in Syria, like right now, I just wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs about this in some detail with a map and a map and everything to explain it, but Syria was the most complex problem on the face of the earth. You had the 40,000 foreign fighters coming in to fight on the, on the opposition side and extremists. Then you had the Hezbollah and Iranian Shia-backed people coming in. It's just a total chaos. You have chemical weapons. You have everything. Um, and you had a total atomization of the state. Impossible to tell who's who. Um, and the fighting raging and, and, and migrants and refu- refugees and the millions. It's a significantly different problem now and a much more simplified one because now there are basically three zones of of influence one is the northwest which is u.s this force of 60,000 syrians that we built it's about a third of syria most of the country is now the assad regime with russia and iran and then you have the northwest which is heavily influenced by turkey um, and what remains of the opposition and a lot of extremist groups are still up there but that's kind of the situation mm-hmm. so it calls for uh, some great power diplomacy. And one reason, I, one reason I really disagree with the decision to announce we're going to leave Syria is that it just, I've negotiated with the Russians on Syria uh, quite a bit, quite extensively, and to have the military force at your back and the presence on the ground without announcing you're going to leave gives you some strength at the table as a diplomat. But the situation in Syria now calls for great power diplomacy with the U.S., with Russia, uh, with Turkey. Uh, we're not talking to the Iranians, but someone's got to talk to them. Um, because they're a big player there. And uh, I think there are, are ways in which we could actually uh, help ensure um, that the civil war dies down and that ISIS doesn't have that much room to resurge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard, but it takes, it's great power diplomacy. 
And it takes, unfortunately, um, a commitment from the president. Because if you're a diplomat overseas, there's this problem right now, and nobody knows if you are speaking for uh, the president. And this is how the decision on Syria to leave, it was President Erdogan of Turkey, um, didn't really like the direction of US policy and insisted on talking directly to the president, sure enough, got a completely different answer than what was the declared policy from our otherwise highest levels. So um, I think there's an opportunity in Syria, given that it's kind of settling down in the area of these three zones. Um, but I, I'm, I'm concerned that the, just the dysfunction in the US policymaking community at the highest levels, uh, we might forfeit that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we have reached the point in our program where there was time for only one last question. And, um, and so I'll ask about what you're doing here at Stanford. You're going to be teaching a class in the fall. Tell us about what that class will be and, and what you hope your students will take away from it. Great. It's a good question. I, I, first, I, I love it. Um, I've been here just a couple months, so I've been spending the first couple months to get acclimated, uh, doing some writing, doing some commentating. Um, putting together a, course, a graduate level course in the fall about presidential decision making. So uh, I'll compare and contrast the three presidents I worked for, um, but drawing back on some historical lessons uh, and then doing a simulation at the end. So my goal, my hope, that is students that take my class, if they are ever in a position that I'm in, um, they'll have some basic kind of ways to think through these problems in the, in the toolkit. Um, government service at, at these levels can be totally overwhelming. The flood of information um, combined with instantaneous headlines, presidents that want to react. Um, how do you kind of prioritize? How do you sift through all this information? And how do you set a strategy for our country that's achievable? And particularly before we send our men and women overseas, what is the decision-making process that, that goes into that? And how do you have a disciplined policy-making process to align your ends, ways, and means before we embark on something. So it's about presidential decision-making, kind of a practitioner's toolkit, and um, I think it should be pretty interesting. And uh, we have a great group of graduate students at Stanford, and um, I've been telling folks, if you want to study foreign policy, think about coming out, out here. It's good to get away from the East Coast for a bit. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> good to make the pitch. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, our, our thanks to Brett McGurk, distinguished lecturer at the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, former special presidential envoy overseeing the campaign to defeat ISIS under Presidents Trump and Obama. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. I'm Brian Fishman, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you.